Thanks, um, all of you, for coming, particularly looking forward to our exchanges. Um, and it looks like we'll have some sub uh, substantial time for it. And I'm still suffering from a bit of uh, jet lag coming from New York, so I apologize in advance for how this may or may not affect my presentation. As you may know, we're in presidential uh, debate season in the U.S., and watching the news pr each day provides a new lesson on how to keep uh, expectations low. So there's my attempt. <laughs> So before talking about abortion, let me just say something about religious and secular interaction in general. Um, and if I can offer my own experience, um, I hope you'll permit me to do that. In America, we have both robust religious and robust secular discourses trying to work things out in our public spheres. I come to these discussions specifically as a Christian ethicist who wants to speak on the most controversial issues in bioethics and ethics uh, more generally. Some of my colleagues are very pessimistic about the possibility of such interaction, and with good reason. Our culture is uh, more polarized now than at any time since our Civil War, and divides largely along secular and religious approaches much of the time. Uh, but I'm actually more hopeful than many about this kind of interaction, especially uh, given my recent interactions with Julian's uh, mentor, uh, Peter Singer. I've actually uh, come to know Peter Singer uh, rather well. I've debated Peter and lectured in his classes at Princeton. Um, last year, he came to my doctoral seminar uh, in bioethics at Fordham. And uh, he came to dinner with some of us afterwards, which was kind of fun, too, uh, to interact. It was a little bit difficult finding um, vegan options in the old school Little Italy in the Bronx, but we managed to do it. Um, <laughs> We, uh, we planned to Peter and I planned a major international conference together at Princeton, trying to find common ground and ways to uh, talk together about abortion. And next month, he will join a panel at Fordham that I put together, which puts him and I in conversation with a diverse group of Christian theologians about non-human animals, which I'm really looking forward to. On the basis of these and other experiences, I want to argue that religious and secular discourse can go a million times better if the following three things can happen. First, religious folks, like myself, need to acknowledge the critiques that often come from secular folks that our arguments rest on first principles uh, for which we simply do not have arguments. They grab us or claim us by some kind of authority. They are based on faith. Second, secular folks need to acknowledge the critique that often comes from theologians that their arguments also rest on first principles for which they do not have arguments. They also simply grab or claim them by some kind of authority. Whether it is the utilitarian dogma that one person counts as one and none more than one, or the supreme libertarian doctrine of personal freedom and autonomy, or even simply general claims that we can recognize flourishing and well-being at all. These ideas come from a fundamental understanding of the good for which there simply cannot be arguments. They come from a narrative, a story, an intuition, an a priori commitment. In short, they are also based on faith. Third, armed with the knowledge that both religious and secular folks have faith-based understandings of the good, we, if we, and if we take the time and intellectual solidarity with each other, to, we can map out places where we agree and disagree. And my experience is that we often find the agreement is quite substantial. I would argue, though it would take longer to make the argument, I would assert, I guess for now, uh, that it is in particular because understandings of the good, even in our secular discourse, are indebted to the Abrahamic religions for much of what they believe about the good. We can talk about that in question and answer if you like. This is an especially promising methodology, however, 
when we can find a way to talk in similar ways about where we agree about flourishing and well-being. And Julie and I are trying to work on a paper together on this right now, actually. It's slow going, but, but we're working on it together. At any rate, I, I found precisely this kind of substantial agreement in my systematic exploration of the thoughts of Peter Singer when combining them or comparing them with Christian ethics. In some ways, it is sad that this series uh, will fo focus on abortion and euthanasia alone, because even though there is broad overlap in the premises of our arguments, with these two issues, the ultimate conclusions are, in fact, quite different. But on issues like ethical concern for non-human animals and for poverty, for instance, the striking overlap is both with regard to premises and with ultimate conclusions. If you'd like to know more what, of what I think about those, I have a book that I just wrote on. But let's turn to abortion, and I will use my interaction with Peter Singer as sort of a hermeneutic to both outline my argument and show the possibility of religious secular interaction. And let me say at the outset that I, I realize that abortion is not an uncommon procedure, and my argument today is not meant to critique the decisions of anyone here or the decision of anyone else that you may know who hasn't had an abortion. As we will see, abortion is a very complex topic, and we need to make an important distinction between an act's immorality and someone being blameworthy for committing a particular act. Lots of mitigating circumstances would, be, would need to be taken into consideration to move from one to the other. Also, at first glance, it looks as if abortion is a terrible place to start religious secular interaction, right? It is such a polarizing issue, uh, especially in my country, and especially in the context of Peter Singer's thought, who not only supports abortion, but the right to infanticide. Um, though it's not unclear now whether he thinks it should be legally available, he certainly supports the moral arguments for it. While my tradition, uh, as a Catholic, claims that even discarding an embryo is the equivalent of killing a person, right? It seems, why would we start here? But as anybody who has studied the issue knows, arguments about abortion have many premises, and done well, they are incredibly complex. So I cannot hope to do justice to that complexity in the time I have remaining, but I can highlight the premises on which uh, Peter Singer and the Catholic Church agree when it comes to abortion, and then make a short argument about where I think they disagree, and it's quite a narrow disagreement in the context of this really complex issue. So both agree that abortion cannot be justified on the basis of a right to privacy, which is currently the legal basis of it being permitted in the United States. Both Peter Singer and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops would like to see the Supreme Court overrule Roe v. Wade and have the matter decided by public argument and a legislative process. I think that's remarkable right there. Uh, both agree that if the fetus is a person, it would be wrong to kill that person, all things being equal. Both agree that if the fetus is a person, one has a duty to sustain that person with one's body. In other words, both agree that Thompson's violinist argument fails. Both disagree with the unintended consequences argument about legal protection of the law for fetuses acknowledged to be persons. Whether we are talking about the claims that such laws are unenforceable or they would unacceptably harm women or that they would create a far too intrusive government, all those arguments are dismissed by both approaches, though there are serious arguments. Both agree about a logical conclusion or connection between abortion and infanticide. Singer claims that the same thing which justifies abortion also justifies infanticide, while the church claims the same thing which prohibits infanticide also prohibits abortion. They disagree about which way the reasoning goes, but they don't disagree about the logical connection. Where Singer and the church disagree 
unsurprisingly, is on the moral status of the fetus. But even within this sub-argument, there are a substantial number of premises that both have in common. For instance, both agree that the fetus is like us in that she is a human animal, a member of the species Homo sapiens. Both agree that there is no reasonable basis for claiming that an older fetus is a person and a younger fetus is a non-person. Even viability for both traditions adds no moral value. Both reject the concept, or both reject speciesism, or the view that a fetus is a person merely because she is a member of the species Homo sapiens, or the view that only human organisms can be persons. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the Christian tradition, it may come as a, that uh, that may come as some surprise to you. But angels were considered persons throughout the tradition, still are. And in an interesting development, a, an official from uh, the Vatican Observatory recently said that he would baptize an alien if he had the opportunity, and the, and the alien asked. Though they might have different, and finally, as an area of overlap, they might, have, um, they might mean different things by the term, but both think um, the argument about the moral status of the fetus turns on whether she can appropriately be described as rational. Okay, this then is where the disagreement lies. But... Isn't it just absurd to think of a fetus as rational, right? If a fetus, uh, if it is, um, it is no more absurd, I would argue, than it is to think of an infant as rational. I think Peter Singer is profoundly correct to claim that a newborn infant is no more rational than is a chicken. But there is an obvious distinction to be made between an infant and a chicken. The infant, if she is healthy and in the proper environment, will develop her traits such that she will become rational. The chicken will not. This, then, is the reason we should, in my view, we should consider both prenatal and neonatal human children to be persons because of their potential to be rational. And again, I would qualify rational. It's not in the Enlightenment sense of rational. It's in the sort of medieval sense of rational, which meant the capacity to know and love God and therefore implied a relationship. So it's sort of, I would want to say rational and relational, but let's just stick with rational because both use the term. Now, what I've just outlined for you is the famous, for those of you that study this, argument for potential, and those of you that know about it probably know a lot of the objections to it. So let's just quickly go through them. Um, most of the arguments are reductio ad absurdum arguments, trying to give counterexamples to say, well, if you think that those are potential uh, rational creatures, count as rational creatures, what about these examples? So Peter Singer uh, offers one of them, and he says... Uh, the AFP, I'll just call it the AFP, argument for potential, can't work unless we are willing to consider fertility lab technicians blameworthy for rinsing spare spermanova down a drain, right? Because they have the potential to be rational, and that's absurd, right? That's not, the argument for potential fails that example. Let me give you two more. Michael Tooley, who some of you may know is an important philosopher, also a proponent of infanticide, says that the AFP can't work unless we are willing to say at a future time where we have a drug available which can turn non-rational mammals into rational animals, thought experiment, we would consider animal control technicians blameworthy for euthanizing kittens, right? Because given this drug, they have the potential to be rational. I love analytic philosophy thought experiments. They just make my day. Our Altacharo... Uh, says that the AFP can't work unless we are willing to consider me right now blameworthy as I scratch my skin and kill my skin cells. Why? Because in light of cloning, these cells that I'm killing right now have the potential to be rational, right? We can turn these, we could, in theory, turn these skin cells into embryos. But that's absurd. All three are absurd. 
And that's pretty devastating, right? All, all one needs is one counterexample to refute an argument, and then you've got it. But we have three to deal with here. But in my response uh, to all three, uh, I want to say that what is going on here is actually a confusion of two different ways you might understand the concept of potential. And it's an important confusion. So let me try to unpack it. Aristotle passed on to Aquinas and then passed on to, to the church the distinction between passive potential on the one hand and active potential on the other. A thing has passive potential. Uh, if a thing has passive potential, it should not be considered right now the kind of thing it has the potential to become. For instance, a tree is a possible podium, right? But a tree should not be considered a podium. In order for a tree to become a podium, it would have to be cut down into pieces. It would have to be acted upon by an outside force that would change the kind of thing that it is. It would undergo an, what I call a nature-changing event. By contrast, so that's passive potential. By contrast, a sprouting acorn is a potential oak tree. But biologists already recognize that a sprouting acorn is already properly considered an oak tree. Here, the sense of potential is active. There is no nature-changing event. All the sprouting acorn needs to do is mature as the kind of thing it already is. And this is how making this distinction helps us deal with the counterexamples. So whether we are talking about spare spermanova or pre-drugged kittens or skin cells, it would take a nature-changing event to make them into rational persons, right? Um, they only have passive potential for rationality. They would have to undergo a nature-changing event. But fetuses and infants already have a rational nature. They just need the right energy, environment, and time for this to happen. They have active potential for rationality, and thus already should be considered persons, already being having a technical moral theology substance of a rational nature. Now, the church is going to consider all beings with this kind of nature, including angels and aliens, and I would want to I argue in the book that maybe some non-human animals should be considered persons as a result of their rational capacities. Um, but, and this includes, um, but this includes not only all these, not only prenatal and neonatal children, but as we will see tomorrow, I want to talk about um, those in a persistently unconscious state, various persistently unconscious states as well, as having the same kind of uh, nature. Uh, such persons, because they often suffer, let's face it, in, in my view anyway, systematic discrimination and violent deaths, deserve not only equal protection of the law, uh, but the kind of preferential option for the most vulnerable that the Abrahamic religions insist upon. Let me also note in passing that the AFP is also the reason we should consider other non-rational humans to be persons, such as those of us who were in non-REM sleep last night, or maybe um, who are drunk or otherwise intoxicated, or those who are even enraged or the mentally disabled. These are homo sapiens that aren't rational, but they, are, they remain substances of a rational nature. Now, I could, I could go on to another topic here. Do you want me to finish? Or? Okay, got time. One, one more topic. Um, one place that I think both Singer and the Catholic Church fall short in talking about abortion um, is with regard to uh, femi feminist issues and women's issues. So let me talk a little bit about that before, before I um, conclude. Um, this is a real concern. The history of men controlling women's bodies is horrific, and we should be skeptical of any attempts 
which look like it might do the same thing. Uh, and again, this is a personal nature for many, many women, and I want to respect that. Um, but it must be said, I think, if I'm going to make this argument today, that uh, I want to highlight some arguments that many of my pro-life feminist friends point out. And one of the things they start with is that the abortion rights, rights regimes in the West came into existence under men. And it largely suits the social structures which favor men. Uh, it is seen as necessary for women to function in society, but that functioning seems to be as a cog in a market-driven, capital-producing wheel created by men. Many feminists are also sensitive to how mere choice magnifies social injustice. Um, so in this case, when sexual, sexual power still favors the male, and it favors the male especially in marginalized communities, abortion's availability and its expected use becomes a tool by which uh, men exert power over women. Also, when women are not given the resources to care for their children, the access to abortion choice is not really a choice at all, but another form of coercion. I realize you guys here in uh, the UK and Europe don't have the same issues with this we have in the United States, but given the, um, some of the situations of entrenched poverty that women find themselves, the, the choice for abortion is not really a liberating choice at all. Um, given this, then, it is hardly surprising, in the United States at least, uh, that women are only slightly less likely than men to describe themselves as pro-life. This is uh, despite the fact that women are told at every stage of their education that, abortion, that the right to abortion is essential for their flourishing. Incidentally, and this, this sort of compares, interestingly, at least in my view, to the numbers overall, where we're going with this. In the United States in 1996, according to Gallup, 56% of Americans describe themselves as pro-choice and 33% describe themselves as pro-life. Um, in 2012, 50% described themselves as pro-life and only 41% as pro-choice, which was a record low. So even from 1996 to 2012, the numbers seem to be uh, moving in this direction. And actually, it's especially true among young people, among the millennial generation, who also dramatically support gay marriage. So there's a little bit of interesting... Uh, interesting uh, confluence there, or maybe dissonance. But in, let me just conclude and, and get to Julian. Um, let's go back to the big picture. So Peter Singer believes in infanticide. The church believes in protecting embryos. But the whole ballgame, at least on abortion, with all the complexity and premises involved, um, comes down to the very narrow and technical just, uh, um, disagreement that I just described. This is an important debate to have, and I wish we were able to have it more honestly and openly, um, but I'm confident that we can move forward if we engage our opponents in the spirit of intellectual solidarity. And that's why I feel so unfortunate to engage with uh, someone like Julian uh, this way here today, and I look forward to hearing what he has to say. So um, I'm very keen on this project. Uh, some of my best friends are Catholics. Um, so you know, I, I think that it's, it's correct to say that um, we, we are all individuals and these groups like Catholics or utilitarians often don't accurately represent the views of people within that tradition. So, for example, many of the, the, the uh, positions that Charlie claimed that, that Peter supports, I, I don't personally support as somebody who's broadly a consequentialist. And as I said, many of my best friends are Catholics. They don't have the same position as the Pope or uh, fundamentalist elements of the, the Catholic Church. And I think one of the important projects today is to try to find 
a consensus in that middle ground of people who are willing to revise their views and find common ground. So I've actually written a new talk for this uh, as a sort of uh, tribute to Charlie's kind of ideas. And, and it's, it's one example of where I've revised my own views. Um, and I think they're in some ways closer to, to, a, to a Catholic position than certainly they began with. But let, let me first give you the background to how I arrived at this position and then the implications. So in March, I, I will make some remarks if there is time on, on Charlie's arguments about potentiality. Uh, yeah, I think they're wrong. <laughs> but I think there's a grain of truth in them and, again, a common ground that, that we can share. But let me start off with my journey towards reconciliation. Um, in March 2006, a 21-year-old Cleveland man, Christopher Chalanson, was driving home from a party with his 17-year-old girlfriend, Jessica Carros. She was four months pregnant. They began to argue about her ability to care for their child. Challenson, who had been drinking, became angry and began to weave at high speed through the traffic. He lost control of the car and crashed. Karos was left paralysed from the chest down and the baby died. Challenson was unhurt. Because he killed the baby, he was charged with homicide in this state of the United States, as well as assault for ruining her life, as her father put it. So... Here we have a case where a man is charged with homicide for killing a fetus. In January 2005, Alison Miller and Todd Parrish sued their fertility clinic, the Centre for Human Reproduction in Chicago. They had been having IVF in 2002 and had stored nine embryos, one of which was mistakenly discarded by the clinic. The clinic apologised and offered the, the couple a free cycle of IVF, but they sued the clinic for the wrongful death of their embryo. Now, contrast those two cases with the fact that in countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, hundreds of thousands of abortions of fetuses occur every year. The fetuses are killed and these are not deemed to be crimes. Nearly all of these abortions are for healthy, normal babies. No one is charged with murder or negligence over these deaths. Thousands of embryos are destroyed in Australia, the United Kingdom, America every year. In fact, the law in countries like Australia and the United Kingdom requires their destruction after a certain period, usually five to ten years. So how can killing a fetus on the one hand be homicide and on the other hand no crime at all? How can the destruction of embryos at the same time be required by law and widely practised, but also in some places be the crime of wrongful death and a moral abomination? How can one act, the killing of early human life, be both right and wrong? We have polar opposite attitudes, moral norms and laws relating to embryos and fetus. How can this conflict be reconciled? Now, one solution which has been proposed by the Christian right, including fundamentalist elements of the Catholic Church, pro-life movements and some politicians is to, to give the embryo from the moment of conception a full right to life, to treat it like a child. This proposal has been championed, in fact, by the current opposition leader of the Australian Liberal Party, Tony Abbott. Now, the strategy of giving an embryo or a fetus a full right to life certainly resolves this conflict um, in, in the practices relating to early life. Killing embryos and fetuses would then always be wrong. But it also leaves us in a world with no abortion, even after rape, 
or when the woman's life is at stake. No effective contraception. The most commonest methods, the IUD and the pill, both destroy early human life. No IVF and ultimately no control over our reproduction. And this appeal to, to potentiality would create enormous problems for society because the greatest loss of human beings occurs before birth. Huge numbers of embryos, four out of five embryos perish before ever producing a baby. If they were human beings, this would dwarf all disease that currently exists amongst you know, existing persons. Uh, and we should devote all our me- of our medical resources, as Toby Ord argues, to this scourge of early fetal loss. Now, many conservative religious and political leaders joyfully embrace these, these consequences. They seek to impose these values on the rest of society because they believe on faith and without consideration of any revision of their views to be right. This is just the sort of disrespect for liberty, intolerance and moral pig-headedness that we find so contemptible in regimes like that of the Taliban. Now, our, in Australia, our own aspiring Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, once wrote of the importance of Christian values in public life and it lauded Australian Christian politicians. However, the kinds of Christian values which claim that the embryo and fetus have the same right to life, exactly the same right to life as other humans, accounts for poorly, accounts poorly for the way in which modern liberal society actually functions and the conflict with widely accepted uh, and valued practices. Now, there is a value to controlling our reproduction to deciding how many children we will have and when to have them. Go forth and multiply was a biblical uh, injunction, but there is a limit to that. Every human life has a value when it's a part of a plan, sometimes a well-formed plan in the context of a blissful, loving marriage, but sometimes an inarticulate intention in a chaotic or immature relationship to have a child is the wrong thing. And sometimes there are too many people in the world. The moral reason that Challenson was wrong to act in a way which killed his girlfriend's baby was because she wanted to have the baby. Challenson is more like a drunk driver who recklessly kills an innocent child than a doctor who performs an abortion at a woman's request. It should have been Miller and Parrish who decided the fate of their embryos, not the Chicago Clinic. No matter what the law, the destruction of embryos is a moral crime when parents want to have them. If they don't want them, I'd like to say there's nothing wrong, but I'm going to go argue and and argue that there is something wrong, but um, nothing hugely wrong in destroying them. So here is the solution to the puzzle of our conflicting attitudes towards the embryo and the fetus. Embryos have a special moral value when they're part of a plan to have a child, or at least desired by the people who made them. Embryos don't have special moral value when they're not desired by the people who formed them. One of the greatest ethical advances has been to give people freedom to control their own reproduction to decide how many children to have and when to have children. This is precisely something that the fundamentalist elements of the Catholic Church seek to deny, um, this reproductive liberty. Fortunately, women no longer have to have 10 or 20 children during their reproductive lives. So the two missing puzzles in in the puzzle of early life are the value of reproductive liberty and the conditional moral status of early life. Now, the implications of the fetus or embryo having conditional value. I view the embryo or the fetus as like a work of art. Now, something like the Mona Lisa, 
It's wrong to destroy valuable art for no reason. And it would be wrong even to fail to produce that valuable art if we had no good reason. Imagine that da Vinci was sitting around with nothing special to do one day and he thought, well, maybe I could paint something that will become the Mona Lisa. He said, no, I prefer to go to the pub and have a drink with my friends. This would be, I believe, a wrong thing because of all the joy that he's brought to future people through their viewing of that art and numerous other values. Now, he has a reason to produce that art and we have a reason not to destroy it. But we don't have to ascribe an intrinsic moral value to the Mona Lisa to make those claims. We only have to claim, appeal to its conditional value, conditional on its value to people who have been alive or will be alive or are alive. Now, it seems trivialising to value early human life and to compare it to art. But one could make the extreme claim that every human life is more valuable than the Mona Lisa. Even so, I think few people would accept that, but even if it were true, we're still not under a strong obligation to have children or to refrain from abortion in the same way as da Vinci is not under a strong obligation to produce such a thing. Other reasons could defeat the obligation to produce such works of art. Now, when it comes to spare IVF embryos for couples who have already um, had the number of children that they want, we're faced with a similar kind of problem. Other couples want to use them, yet almost routinely those embryos are destroyed. This is like, in many ways, the destruction of a work of art for no good reason. Now, consider abortion. People bring value to each other's lives. And when a couple decides, or a woman decides to have an abortion, she is in many ways denying future people who will exist the value that that child would have brought to their lives. This is most obvious in those cases where there's a couple who wish to adopt the child, but in more general cases, that child brings value to society. People like Derek Parford and myself have even argued that there are impersonal values or impersonal reasons that have to do with reproduction, but we needn't deal with that difficult issue here. We can simply concentrate on the value that a child, a baby, a fetus would bring to the future in the same way as creating a piece of art or some other valuable object would bring to future people. Now, as I said, we have reasons to create objects, pieces of art, and also to bring into existence possible people. But this is only a pro tanto or prima facie reason or a defeasible obligation. Nobody would argue that we have an overriding obligation to bring about whatever value we can into the future. Clearly, this has to be weighed against other reasons, reasons to control the global population, duties to oneself and one's existing children, duties to the environment, and so on. All of these obligations or reasons have to be weighed in order to decide whether one has all things considered a reason to have a child or not have a child. And given that the reasons to do with bringing art forms into existence or things that benefit other people are much smaller than the reasons we typically have to existing people, these obligations will, will typically be quite weak. But nonetheless, they exist. So in those cases, 
where a pre, uh, giving up an embryo or a fetus imposes very little cost on a couple, the reasons to give those embryos or fetuses up are much stronger. So, for example, if ectogenesis, the ability to to bring to gestate embryos out or fetuses outside of the female body, were the case, then the costs of giving up a fetus or an embryo would be much less. The costs are, are smallest in the case of spare embryos from IVF. So in these cases, the reasons to give them up are not outweighed typically by strong personal reasons um, that would, would argue in favour of their destruction. So in some cases, a few cases, I think it can be all things considered wrong to destroy embryos or even fetuses, particularly those which are spare from IVF. I believe we have obligations, not utilitarian obligations, but obligations of a duty of easy rescue. So one minimal form of consequentialism is to argue that when the cost to you is small and the benefit to somebody else is large, you have a moral obligation to perform that act. Now, it's interesting that Peter typically when he goes to argue in public, doesn't argue from utilitarian considerations, he argues from this consideration, which is much more acceptable to everyone. Um, so his, his arguments about um, alleviation of poverty are based on these sorts of duty of easy rescue considerations. So it's clear that people could be, it seems to me clear that people could be under an obligation to have a child when it's a case of a duty of easy rescue, such as when it would be a matter of merely giving up embryos which are no longer required for reproduction to another couple uh, who desperately want to gestate a child and have a, have a child of their own. Now, this could even be a, a legal requirement. It seems to me that um, both conservatives about the moral value of embryos and fetuses and consequentialists such as myself who see some value to bringing embryos and fetuses to the point of, of producing a live-born person could agree that the law should require a duty of easy rescue. So, in my view, the law should change to require couples who are engaging in IVF who no longer require their embryos to give those embryos to couples who are childless and who want them and also to give them to scientists who are doing bona fide research on the embryo. So, according to this argument, there is something wrong about abortion. It's not that it denies a future of value, as Don Marquise has said, because that argument is obviously mistaken, because if you have an abortion, there is no future child who's deprived of a future of value. But it's a variant of that. It says that you deprive other people in the future of the value that this individual would bring to their lives in the same way as you deny them the value that a piece of art would provide them. So there is something wrong with abortion and there is something wrong with destruction of embryos. And I think we can agree that the needless destruction, the reasonless destruction of embryos as a part of IVF is something that's wrong and indeed probably should be legislated against. So I think I have a couple more minutes, so let me make a couple of remarks about Charlie's argument from potential because I think a lot of it hinges on this. And a lot of it, I don't want to make this a debate around potential and the difference between active and passive potential. But I'll make this one point. Charlie made the telling point that, that a tree is no podium because you have to do something to it. You have to modify it 
in order for it to become a, um, a, a podium. So too with IVF embryos. An embryo sitting in a Petri dish is not going to produce a baby unless you transfer it into a human uterus. And that's a human act, a technological act. So I can't see, even if his argument applies, which I don't think it does, to fetuses and embryos uh, that occur naturally, that the same argument would apply to, um, to IVF embryos. Now, as I said, I don't accept this argument because, as the recent research using iPS cells has shown, every and he mentions Alto Charo, but I made the same argument myself somewhere rather <coughs> than Journal of Medical Ethics at one point. Uh, a somatic cell has a complete genetic complement in the same way as an embryo. Yet, as Yamanaka has shown, a few of those genetic switches are turned in certain ways. How can you say that there's a huge moral difference? between an embryo that occurs naturally and a skin cell when both of them have the same genetic complement and a few genetic switches are turned the other way. Surely if one has an active potential, the other has an active potential because they're both the same biological substance. In fact, they're genetically you know, identical to each other. So I can't see how you can say, you can make this argument that one has a passive potential and the other has an active potential. Both of them have the instructions for an entire human being, and it's a matter of chance or a matter of circumstance or a matter of evolution that the switches happen to be in one way or the other. And as I said, I think um, Johnny Pugh will have more to say about um, Charlie's arguments about potential, but as I said, the implications of this are devastating. If you really accept that we should give special moral consideration to embryos in virtue of their potentiality, our whole pattern of medical research and medical treatment should radically shift because we have an epidemic of an embryo death that kills many more people than die every year from any other disease. Um, but I don't want to be um, intensely critical. I think that consequentialists such as myself who accept the duty of easy rescue and accept considerations of value and non-consequentialists such as Charlie can both agree that in certain circumstances there's something wrong about abortion and something wrong about the destruction of embryos. How we should respond to that in law is a separate question. I think the, the revisions of law that are necessary are fairly limited, but I'll finish there.